My first work in the mines was at Borderland, West Virginia, and I was 13 years old. Back then, people think now, when you say you were 13 years old and start in the mines, they think something funny about it. Back then, there was no such thing as a social security card. All you had to do was be big enough to do a day's work. I went to helping my daddy on the track, and I was kind of thin, and he told me to put on an extra pair of pants and an extra shirt to look big. And we worked on the outside the first day I started to work. I got hot and started shedding the pants and the shirt. Frank Brooks, retired coal miner, age 71, interviewed in 1973. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Today I'm beginning a three-part series on the West Virginia Mine Wars. These were violent conflicts between mine workers and mine owners that took place between 1912 and 1922. This 10-year period included the Paint Creek and Cabin Creek strikes, the Battle of Matewan, the Battle of Tug, the Miners' March on Logan, and the Battle of Blair Mountain. One violent exchange took place on February 7, 1913, during the Paint Creek Battle. Coal operator Quinn Morton and Kanawha County Sheriff Bonner Hill rode an armored train through a miner's tent colony at Paint Creek. Guards opened fire from the train and killed Sesco Estep, one of the miners on strike. Later, miners attacked an encampment of mine guards. In the ensuing battle, at least 16 people, mostly mine guards, were killed. In the next two episodes, I'll discuss these battles in detail. But today I'm focusing on the history of the mining industry in West Virginia and the conditions and events that led to the mine wars. On March 16, 1742, John Peter Salling and four other men set off on an expedition to the Mississippi River. Their journey began a few miles east of Natural Bridge and was commissioned by the Governor's Council of Virginia to claim land for Great Britain. In his journal, Salling described an area in what is now southern West Virginia. Where we came to this country is mountainous, but farther down is plainer. In those mountains, we found plenty of coals, for which we named it Coal River. Where this river and woods river meet, the North Mountains end. The country appears very plain and is well watered. There are plenty of rivulets, fountains, and running streams, and very fertile soil. From the mouth of the Coal River to the River Allegheny, we computed to be 92 miles. And on the sixth day of May, we came to the Allegheny, which we supposed to be three-quarters of a mile, broad. And from her to the Great Falls on this river is reckoned to be 444 miles, there being a large Spanish open country on each side of the river, and is well watered, abounding with plenty of fountains, small streams, and large rivers, is very high and fertile soil. At this time we found the clover to be as high as the middle of a man's leg, in general, all the woods over the land is ridgy but plain, well timbered and hath plenty of all kind of wood that grows in common with us in this colony, except pine. The falls mentioned above 
three miles long, in which is a small island, the body of the stream running on the north side, through which there is no passing by reason of great rocks and whirlpools, by which we went down the south side of said island, without much danger or difficulty, and in time of a fresh river, men may pass either up or down, they being active or careful. About twenty miles below the falls, the land appeared to be somewhat hilly, the ridges being higher, and continued so for the space of fifty miles down the river, but neither rocky nor stony, but a rich soil as above mentioned. Joining the high land below is a very level flat country on either side of the river, so for a hundred and fifty miles, abounding with all advantages mentioned above, and much richer soil, we then met with a kind of ridge that seemed to extend across the country as far as we could view and bore north and south. In seven miles we passed it when we found the country level, as mentioned before, but not having such plenty of running streams, but richer soil. Eventually, it became routine for the European settlers in the area to collect coal from the exposed seams in stream beds, fields, and roadsides. Coal extraction became a casual business trade, done in the winter when people couldn't farm or to replace other forms of income. But before coal became West Virginia's main export, salt evaporation furnaces produced millions of bushels of salt per year. The furnaces were initially fueled by charcoal, but by 1817, coal was used. In 1840, total coal production in the state reached 300,000 pounds, and 200,000 pounds went to the salt furnaces. The laborers who worked the furnaces and mined the coal for them included Anglo-American farmer miners, immigrants from Ireland and Great Britain, and enslaved Americans of African descent. Over the next two decades, 25 independent coal companies would organize and employ 1,000 workers. James Otis Watson was the first coal mine operator in West Virginia to ship coal by rail, specifically the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Considered the father of the West Virginia coal industry, he started the Montana Mining Company in 1852, where the Monongahela River Valley was still part of Virginia. His partner in this new venture was Francis Harrison Pierpont, who later led Virginia's western counties to form their own state after Virginia seceded from the Union. West Virginia became the 35th state in the Union on June 20, 1863. That year, the state produced 444,648 tons of coal. After the Civil War, demand for coal continued to increase. Needed less and less for salt furnaces, coal was fed into the engines of steamboats that rolled up and down the Mississippi River in greater numbers. Coal oil was used to light and heat homes, power industrial machines, and to turn iron into the steel that framed the skyscrapers and formed the rails of the rapidly transforming nation. And because of this relatively inexpensive fuel, trains could move other raw materials and finished goods more quickly and cheaply. Coal moved the trains, and trains moved the coal. In 1873, the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad connected the New and Kanawha coal fields to Richmond, Virginia. And in the 1880s, the Norfolk and Western Railroad linked the national markets to the Pocahontas and 
flat top coal field, which covered Tazewell County, Virginia, and McDowell and Mercer counties in West Virginia. The rail company purchased much of the adjacent land and then leased it to coal operators. One of those operators was Jenkin Jones, who came to the United States from Wales in 1863. After working as a miner in Pennsylvania, he moved to West Virginia and in 1884 partnered with John Freeman to lease 1,400 acres in the flat top field and start Caswell Creek Coal and Coke Company. They started with one mule, one mining car, and a few picks and shovels. Jones and Freeman dug the coal themselves, and five years later, the company took over the property of the Simmons Creek Mine. In 1907, it was incorporated under, under the Pocahontas Coal Company. The original Pocahontas Mine operated until 1955. In his 1901 autobiography, Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington describes mine work from firsthand experience. After I had worked in the salt furnace for some time, work was secured for me in a coal mine, which was operated mainly for the purpose of securing fuel for the salt furnace. Work in the coal mine I always dreaded. One reason for this was that anyone who worked in a coal mine was always unclean, at least while at work, and it was a very hard job to get one's skin clean after the day's work was over. Then it was fully a mile from the opening of the coal mine to the face of the coal. And all, of course, was in the blackest darkness. I do not believe that one ever experiences anywhere else such darkness as he does in a coal mine. The mine was divided into a large number of different rooms or departments, and as I was never and as I never was able to learn the location of all these rooms, I many times found myself lost in the mine. To add to the horror of being lost, sometimes my light would go out, and then, if I did not happen to have a match, I would wander about in the darkness until by chance I found someone to give me a light. The work was not only hard, but it was dangerous. There was always the danger of being blown to pieces by a premature explosion of powder or of being crushed by falling slate. Accidents from one or the other of these causes were frequently occurring, and this kept me in constant fear. The method of mining that Washington refers to is the room and pillar method. The coal seam is a blanket of coal in the bedrock between layers of mainly sandstone, shale, and limestone. A coal seam may be a few centimeters or up to hundreds of meters thick, but it's considered mineable, mineable if it's at least 30 inches thick. Spaces or voids of up to 24 feet would be carved into the seam, leaving behind pillars to support the roof of the mine. At the beginning of a shift, the miner would go into his room with his tools. They included a pickaxe. He was charged monthly for the company blacksmith to sharpen and temper this tool. He also had a shovel, an auger, which is used to drill holes, and a tamping back, fuse, and a can of black powder. Each man had a partner or a buddy to work with. For about two to three hours, the men would use their picks to make an undercut in the coal seam. Sometimes men had to work lying down or on hands and knees in a space that might be just a few feet high. After cutting, they drilled a hole, filled it with blasting powder, lit the fuse, and got out of the way. Ideally, the blast would bring down the undercut coal to the floor, 
a good one released a ton or more. With their picks, the men broke the large clumps of coal into smaller ones, which they shoveled into the mine car after separating out the slate fragments. The miner then attached a small brass tag, known as a brass check, to the car. This identified the coal with the miner, ensuring that he received credit for his work. A mule or a small locomotive pulled the car to the way station and then to the tipple. The tipple was an elevated structure where coal was processed and fed into railroad cars. Loaders, also known as tonnage men, were paid by the ton, not the hour. A skilled loader might fill five or more coal cars in one day or earn $2 for 10 to 12 hours of labor. Incidentally, this was 35% less than unionized mines in Ohio were paying. At some mines, a loader could leave when he had earned the desired amount of money for the day. There were also hourly workers known as company men. These included carpenters and mechanics. A trapper, who could be as young as 10 years old, was responsible for opening it and closing the mine doors to allow coal cars through and to keep air moving. Ventilation was a matter of life and death in the mines, where workers could be exposed to methane, hydrogen sulfide, and carbon monoxide gases. Carbon monoxide is colorless, tasteless, and odorless. When inhaled, it it binds to hemoglobin at a greater rate than oxygen. The first effects of carbon monoxide poisoning include mild lightheadedness, headache, and breathlessness. Concentrations as low as 0.2% in the air can cause death within one to two hours. Methane gas is highly flammable and can cause explosions at air concentrations as low as 5%. Hydrogen sulfide is also highly flammable and explosive. After experimenting with guinea pigs, rabbits, chickens, dogs, mice, and pigeons, the U.S. Bureau of Mines determined that canaries were the most useful sentinels of toxic gases, though pigeons were also used in West Virginia mines. Air enters birds' lungs on expiration as well as inspiration, making them more sensitive than mammals to the toxins in the air. Small quantities of of noxious gas cause the canaries to sway noticeably from side to side before they fall from their perches, 20 minutes earlier than humans faint from exposure. The canaries' distress warned the men that they needed to return to fresher air above ground. The miners also grew very fond of the birds and treated them like pets. West Virginia lagged behind the other major coal-producing states in regulating mining conditions. And in an industry known for deadly accidents, the state of West Virginia was the deadliest. The deadliest month for American mine accidents was December 1907. Over 700 men and boys died in five separate accidents around the country. On the first of the month, 34 employees of the United Coal Company died at the Naomi Mine in Fayette, Pennsylvania. Two days later, 22-year-old Lester Emmett Trader began a letter to his father in McKeesport, Pennsylvania. Trader was a mine fire boss for the Fairmount Coal Company at the Monongah Mine in West Virginia. His responsibilities included sprinkling down excess coal dust using a horse-drawn water cart. He also tested the workspaces for methane gas, which would then have to be cleared out before the workers could enter those spaces. He writes, 
It used to make the shivers run through me to read the news accounts of mine horror. But since I have been in the mines and see into all the little details, it has lost a great part of the horror for me. And the small everyday accidents are more to be feared in my estimation than an extended explosion. Trader continued his letter on December 6th. The greater danger in a mine is not so much as by the flame of the explosion, except when a dust explosion happens immediately after the gas explosion, but by the concussion, where a dust explosion takes place, there is a quick flash throughout the mine or a series of flashes. That morning, Trader's shift had ended at 6 a.m. He mailed his letter, ate breakfast, and went to bed. Decades later, at the age of 93, he recalled what woke him up later that morning. The first thump seemed to lift the whole house. It bounced the bed around, broke the dishes, and we later found it had loosened bricks in the chimney. I jumped out of bed and looked toward the mine half a mile away. When I saw the debris flying out of the fan house roof at number six, I knew what had happened. What had happened was the worst industrial accident in U.S. history. A report by Frank Haas is in the files of the Bureau of Mines. It reads, On that Friday morning, 367 men were in the mine and work progressed as usual until 10.28 a.m., when the explosion killed nearly all the men, wrecked the ventilation system, smashed motors and cars, and destroyed the number eight openings, together with the boiler house and fan, but did little damage to the number six slope. Four men escaped through an outcrop opening, and one man was rescued. Rescue crews restored ventilation by building brattices to conduct the air from number six fan. Three fires were found and extinguished with water. All props and timbers were blown down, causing heavy falls of roof, except in one entry. By December 12th, all workings had been ventilated and searched and 337 bodies recovered. In the next week, 17 others were found and eight more were taken out in the work of removing the fallen rock and restoring the workings. The official death toll was 362 but children often went into the mines with their fathers and uncles. So the actual number of deaths is likely higher. The Fairmont Coal Company gave each family $150, of which company lawyer A. Brooks Fleming said, quote, I think the money would be quite a Christmas present, end quote. Many victims were recent immigrants, like Peter and Stanislaus. There were also Hungarians, Russians, and Austrians. Almost half were Italian, and 34 came from the small mountaintop village of Deronia in the Molise region, about 200 kilometers southeast of Rome. In December 2007, dignitaries from Molise, Abruzzo, and Calabria traveled to Mononga to mark the 100th anniversary of the disaster. There is also a monument in San Giovanni del Fiore, Italy, where many of the miners were from. Mine inspectors from West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Ohio conducted their own investigations and drew varying conclusions. The Marion County coroner attributed the explosion to either what is known as a blown-out shot or by ignition and explosion of powder in the mine number 8. We further find from the evidence that the traces of gas in these mines 
were slight and not considered dangerous, and that dust which was created was removed or kept watered down as far as was deemed practical, and that in operating these mines, the company complied with the mining laws of the state. In all, over 3,000 died in mining accidents that year. That same year, President Theodore Roosevelt had recommended the establishment of the U.S. Bureau of Mines in the Interior Department. Finally, on May 16, 1910, Congress passed the Organic Act, establishing the Bureau. It would be responsible for conducting research and reducing accidents in the coal mining industry. But for another 20 years, mining deaths would number about 2,000 or more per year. In the 30 years following statehood, West Virginia coal production increased 24-fold. It was 10.7 million tons in 1893, almost 50 million tons in 1907, and almost 90 million in 1917. Naturally, West Virginia's population and its coal production increased together. In 1880, there were about 3,700 mine employees in the state, and 75% were native-born whites. By 1900, there were 20,000 coal miners in West Virginia. One-third were foreign-born, one in five was black, the majority were native whites, including many mountaineers who had given up farming permanently. But in some southern counties, the foreign-born and African-American populations combined to outnumber native-born whites. There were nearly 90,000 mine workers in 1917. The earliest white miners had been of British and Irish descent. Over time, more immigrants came from countries in southern and eastern Europe. Coal operators sent agents to port-of-entry cities like New York City and Baltimore to recruit new arrivals. Some operators even traveled to Europe to convince prospective workers that both single and family men could find safe jobs, good pay, and cheap housing in West Virginia. The number of European miners grew from 924 in 1880 to 20,000 in 1910. The majority, about 7,600, were Italian. 4,000 were Hungarian, 1,900 were Slavs, 1,200 Austrian, and 1,000 from Russia. Five years later, almost half of the miners were recent immigrants. Thousands of African-American men also found work in the West Virginia mines. As I talked about in a three-part series on the Great Migration, Union victory in the Civil War did not deliver complete freedom to African-Americans in the South. Though chattel slavery had been abolished, Southern states still found all kinds of ways to keep black people in bondage. Many sought freedom in northern cities like New York and Chicago. While these cities offered new economic, social, and educational opportunities, blacks experienced racism there, too. Some African Americans had already found work building the CNO and Norfolk and Western Railways. railways. They stayed in West Virginia and worked the Kanawha, New River, and Pocahontas mines. To get even more workers, recruiters visited churches and meeting halls and offered to pay train fare, which was deducted from future earnings. When black miners went back south for a visit, they returned to West Virginia with relatives and friends. The state's black population went from 4,800 in 1880 to 40,000 in 1910. McDowell County, the southernmost county in the state, was 30.7% African American in 1910. The great demand for labor in Appalachia 
meant that Native whites, recent immigrants, and blacks could all find work, so there wasn't the racial competition for work and resulting race riots that northern cities had. It wasn't a racial utopia, and in fact, coal operator Justice Collins advised his peers to hire a, quote, judicious mixture, end quote, of races and ethnicities in order to keep the workers from cooperating and organizing. But non-whites received equal pay when they did the same work as whites. But there were racial differences in the positions for which men were hired. Blacks and immigrants were somewhat more likely to be hired for so-called inside jobs like coal loading. Between 1907 and 1932, the percentage of Native whites doing the inside jobs ranged between 50 and 80 percent. Between 77 and 92 percent of blacks did these jobs, and 88 to 92 percent of immigrants did them. Minorities were rarely hired for supervisory positions. This was due to discrimination both outside and inside the mines. Management jobs required a common school or high school education. I've spoken in the Great Migration and Freedom Summer series about Southern Blacks' limited access to education. After 1910, the foreman and fireboss positions required passing a written exam. White universities started offering mining extension courses around the time of World War I, but the all-black West Virginia State College did not offer it until 1937. Only nine black men in West Virginia received foreman papers before 1937. Even though black miners had comparable levels of experience to white miners, coal operators rarely made them managers. One operator said, I have seen but very few Negroes whom I felt inclined to give positions of responsibility to, and if I felt so inclined to place them in a position of authority, this act would be resented by other employees. This same reason prevents the Negro from getting a job on motor runs, plan runs, fire bosses, or other positions of the nature. The management cannot afford to incur the displeasure of all other employees by appointing a Negro to responsible position. Miners of all races faced many challenges above ground. Mines were usually developed far from established towns, so the coal companies built towns to house, feed, and entertain the miners and their families. According to labor historian Dr. Lou Martin, quote, coal operators faced uncertain markets as demand and prices fluctuated wildly, often bankrupting overextended companies. The operators that survived such downturns became obsessive about maintaining tight control of their operations and keeping costs down, particularly labor costs, end quote. These company-built towns may have been an expediency, but they also allowed coal operators to wield great power over the miners' lives. In West Virginia, 90% of miners lived in company towns, more than any other state. The homes were usually simple four-room structures, and the quality varied from camp to camp. Photographs of the company-sponsored garden contests in the towns of Tams in Raleigh County and Gary in McDowell County show women in front of tidy houses and lovely yards. But in Orkney, exterior paint was old and interior walls were dirty. Porches and steps were in bad repair, and boards were often broken. Homes also varied based on the man's position in the company. Mine officials and more skilled workers were assigned the better homes. 
the older homes in worse conditions were assigned to less skilled workers. Aunt Jenny Wilson described her, her life in Logan County camps. The bigger the job you had, the better house you got. They had what they called the boss's camp, and then they had a camp for just the coal miners off away from the boss's camp. And then on above there was a camp for black people, which was called the colored camp. She also shared, My husband made his mine foreman certificate when he was 22, but he didn't always boss. He was an electrician too, but what he enjoyed most was running a machine, because back then, 1918, you made more money doing that than you did anything else. When you was hired as a machine runner, you would live right along just the same as the coal loaders, track men, and motor men. But when you was hired as a key man, as boss, you would stand a show to get a choice house. The best houses in the camp they called Silk Stocking Row. That's where the middle class people lived. You'd live there as long as your husband worked at that company. But you better not let your house get all messed up and dirty around it. But if for some reason Mrs. Wilson was not pleased with her initial housing assignment, she had a way of changing that. You know, if I moved in one of them bad houses, I wouldn't be there very long until I got a good house. If you wasn't a troublesome person, why then, if a better house came empty, you could go and see about getting it. Some places it was the manager, sometimes you went to the bookkeeper. And if you was liked, you didn't cause much trouble in the camp and your husband was a good worker, nine times out of ten, you would get the house. And that way, I always kept on the good side of the company until I could get the house I was pitching for. While mining was men's work, women's work was vital to the family's and community's survival as well. Some families kept chickens, cows, and pigs in their backyards. Some raised gardens. If there wasn't enough space around the homes for gardens, some families grew secret gardens in the wooded mountainside. Women baked bread and made their families clothes. They bartered services, for example, child care in exchange for sewing. Both black and white women did paid domestic work, but it was more common among black women. Conchetta Quattrone, an Italian woman, took in single minors as boarders between 1917 and 1920. In addition to caring for her family of 10 children, she cooked the boarders' meals, packed their lunches, prepared bath water and did laundry, and she was paid in cash. After about 12 years, she had saved enough money for her family to open an independent grocery store and for her husband to leave mining. One benefit that miners' wives had over wives in the other parts of the country was electricity. In 1925, half of American homes had electric power, and the percentage was even smaller in rural communities. But many mining operations had electricity, had electric power stations uh, that could also be used to power miners' homes. In the 1920s, 80% of miners' homes in West Virginia had electricity. Families that could afford appliances, usually af available at the company store, could buy irons, electric stoves, and washing machines. But when money got tight, the washing machine might be repossessed or sold, and household chores had to be done the old way, as Irene Ernest explained. We got a washing machine in Keystone, and Mama taught Sister Catherine how to run it. But in Hemphill, we had to use a washboard again. They did a lot of boiling on the stove. 
She had a coal stove with a tank on the side of it for hot water. We didn't have a bathroom in the house. We had a coal heater and a coal stove. Clean water was not as plentiful. In 1895, Mine Superintendent Bert Wright wrote in his diary about worms in the water piped into a store manager's house in McDowell County. In some of the so-called model camps, there was a water pump close to each miner's house. It was more common to have to walk several yards to the pump to get water for washing and cooking. Steep, mineral-laden hillsides and overcrowded camps negatively impacted water quality. In 1923, the U.S. Coal Commission discovered that many wells were contaminated by drainage from hillside privies. The, the field notes read, At Harvard, one driven well, situated in the middle of the hillside, with 26 privies above it and below it, supplied water for all houses. People didn't like mineral water, so used two unprotected springs, which go dry in summer. Catch rainwater for washing. Nearly all used springs. At Orkney, there were nine drilled wells, four broken, leaving five in use only. One considered good water, others had bad taste and discolored clothes and pails. Majority of people used springs. At Warwick, water from drilled wells pumped it to tank and piped to houses. All drilled wells have concrete slab at the base of pump and pump screwed down. The typical town had one or two simple churches, a boarding house for the single working men, and two schoolhouses, one for white children and one for colored children. There might be one saloon, or there might be several. As Mrs. Wilson alluded to, housing was segregated, even if work was not. On Paint Creek, in the Kanawha field, white miners lived in a section called Frogtown, so named because frogs from the nearby creek hopped through the doors into the homes. Immigrants would all live together in one section, and African Americans in, a, in another. These homes were usually of poorer quality than the homes in the white section. The nicknames for these sections were often included a slur for whatever group of people lived there, like the N-word. Every camp had a company store where the men purchased mining equipment and blasting powder, and women bought food, clothing, and other household goods, sometimes with prices that were 5 to 12 percent higher than independent stores nearby. Mine operator William P. Tams, Jr. admitted that fellow operators charged, quote, all the market could bear, end quote, to offset the losses they experienced when coal prices fell. Many, many companies paid their miners in scrip. This company-issued currency reduced the company's need to have cash. It also gave the company an added measure of control over the miners. Scrip could be redeemed for its full face value only at the mine store, though some banks did give 90 cents on the dollar for it. If there were other businesses near the camp, they honored perhaps only 60% of the value. And if there weren't any other businesses, mining families had no other purchasing options. The president of the United Mine Workers of America, District 17, M.F. Moran, decried the store system in a letter to West Virginia's Labor Commissioner, Edward Robertson, in 1890. Sir, I received your letter asking for information. You ask what are my views 
in regard to the running of company stores by mine operators. I have for many years been pronounced regarding my views as to the truck, or as you have it, the Pluck Me store system, either in miners' mills or agricultural communities, or anywhere else. It has been my misfortune to see its impoverishing and enslaving work all over the mining regions of America. And the system is regarded by all classes of workmen as the greatest curse that afflicts the mining craft. It is, strictly speaking, a relic of the barbarous ages of the past. Wherever it exists, the system calls for the severest condemnation. There is no system connected with the industrial question pertaining to wages that is so degrading in its methods as is the coal operator's company store, commonly known as the pluck me. A system by which employees are in many instances robbed of from 25 to 40 percent of their hard-earned wages. The system in existence in West Virginia may be thus briefly told. A coal operator employs several hundred miners. For the accommodation of these he opens a store, dealing in dry goods, boots and shoes and groceries. He issues checks, or what is called in mining parlance pasteboard or scrip. In order to deal in his store, the miner must call at the office after a day's labor has been performed to obtain many times the amount of that day's labor before he can go to his home and sit down to eat his supper. This pasteboard is not transferable for fear the miners might buy from some more honest dealing individual and obtain goods at a less price. The system as thus arranged needs but one addition to put the miner entirely in the power of his employer, an irregular or long-deferred payday. Cash payments are deferred for a month after the completion of the month, for which wages are due, with the exception of the Wheeling mining region, the rule of monthly payments prevails. It is hardly worth while pointing to the fact where wages are due for the month of January, the miner does not receive his month's wages until the latter part of February. And we have known miners in this state to wait as long as three and four months at a time for their hard-earned wages and deal in a company store. At the shortest possible time allowed for pay at the mines in this state, from 45 to 50 days expire before miners receive their wages. A miner earning $1.50 per day or more cannot afford to wait for the payday and is in a manner forced to deal in the company stores. The checks are only good at the company store. Consequently, the system permits the employer to charge him extortionate prices for the goods. This long-deferred payday secures the trade of the majority who are not willing to deal in the store. As it is impossible for miners, no matter how saving they may be, to lay aside any great amount of cash when payday comes, and as the operator generally looks after number one, there are usually equally effective methods to keep the miners in this sad condition. The few who wait and receive their cash are given to understand, either directly or indirectly, that he must trade at the company store or look for work elsewhere. If miners are always independent in not dealing in company stores, there is fault found with their coal. There is too much sulfur in it, or there is more slack than it is usually the case with the miners who deal in the store. The only way left to get better places to work in these mines is to have a large monthly account in the pluck me. 
I know plenty of miners in this state who, in order to get cash to pay their dues within the union, exchange the scrip for a discount of 25 cents on the dollar. This system of payments can be better understood by comparing the prices paid for flour in the company store over this state and what it can be bought for in the independent stores. Flour selling in many places in this state can be purchased at from $5.50 to $6.50 per barrel, while in the company stores, the same article sells at $7.50 to $8.65 per barrel. Bacon can be bought at $0.08 cents per pound, while it is $0.12.5 cents per pound in the pluck me. Robertson goes on to say that Ohio laws do a better job of protecting minors in, their, in that state. He writes about the necessity of the union and expresses hope that, quote, God speed you in your noble efforts to bring the sad condition of the minors of West Virginia before the light of enlightened public opinion, end quote. The company store even sold caskets. The New River Mine Company deducted payments for a burial fund from each miner's check. When he died, if a, if a miner had not completed payments to his burial fund, the cost of the casket was reduced, was deducted from his final check before his heirs were paid. Fred Mooney experienced firsthand the power that coal operators maintained with Scrip and the company store. He writes about it in his autobiography, Struggle in the Coal Fields. Lillian, we don't seem to be getting anywhere. Here we are. I have worked, and you and I have skimped, and tried to save something for a rainy day, and we are right where we started. Yes, she answered with resignation. It seems hopeless, and the children are coming on too, and will need books and decent clothing when they start school. Lillian, I replied, the first day the mine is idle, I'm going to visit another mine to see if I can secure a better job. You know I work every minute that there is to work, and yet I cannot even get enough to get ahead to move out of here. Company officials learned that I had gone away that morning to hunt for another job, so when Lillian visited the company store to obtain the day's supply of food, she was informed by the bookkeeper that no more script would be issued to me. Why, she said, Fred has wages due him at the office. Yes, said the bookkeeper, we know that. But in the event he leaves our employ, it may be some time before he moves out of our house, and the money due him will be absorbed for house rent. To say Lillian was mad would be putting it mildly. She called the bookkeeper names, such as Grifter, Cheat, etc. My husband has been slaving here for three years, she stormed, and hasn't even made a decent living for us, and now that he has gone out of the creek to look for a better job, we are denied food when he has money coming to him. Oh, I hope the union comes here. Then you will pay the wages, and we will get something besides script for Fred's work. By this time, the superintendent had overheard the argument, and when Lillian wished for the union, he became furious. I know you will move now, he said. And what's more, you will move right away, because we don't want any union sympathizers here, and we are not going to have them. Mooney later says... But I loved my wife for what she had said to the coal company officials. She had said things that I had never been courageous enough to say. She had voiced the sentiments that had burned at my vitals for years, but because of fear of the blacklist, I had kept silent. 
Three days later, his family was evicted, but Fred Mooney did not stay silent. After the confrontation at the company store and subsequent eviction, Fred saw for himself how hard the operators would fight against unionization. Rumors of the union coming into our camp reached my ears at times. I made half-spirited inquiries concerning the union. I heard of the short hours, the better pay, the protective measures practiced by the union against blacklist and unemployment. One day I said to my buddy, Joe, we ought to get the union in here and organize. We would get more wages, our working hours would be shortened, and we would have some degree of protection from the whims of the employer. Joe looked at me aghast. Do you know what you're saying? We will get discharged, run out of there, and maybe beat up if the guards learn of what you have said. I don't give a damn, I replied. I'm tired of loading 3,000 pounds for a ton of coal, of slaving from year to year with nothing to show for it. My wife and baby's almost naked, barely enough to eat, with no chance to get ahead. Look at my wife and yours. They're wasting away, more because of worry than anything else, trying to make both ends meet. My wife has not been to see a circus for years. She never goes to visit her folks because she's ashamed of her clothing. Are we forever going to stand for such as this? One day, when the mine was not working, I boarded a train up the river to one of the mines that was working under contract with the union. I must have talked to the wrong man at the mine, for the company guards had learned of my doings, and I was informed after boarding the train that if I visited the union headquarters that day, that I must not undertake to come back to the creek that evening. This made me good and mad. I said to the guard, I will go to the union headquarters in spite of you, hell or anything else. Fred Mooney went to the union headquarters as he promised and spoke with the union president, who told Fred that they weren't ready and Fred should go back and wait until they were. When he got home, he was told as he left the train to get out as soon as possible or he would be carried out. So he rented a house from a private citizen and searched for work and one of the, at one of the Union mines along the Kanawha River. They were skeptical. Where are you from? asked the job foreman. Cabin Creek, I replied. Don't know whether I better hire you or not, he said. The men here are skeptical about the men from Cabin Creek. We have several gunmen come here and get into the Union as spies. I looked at him askance. Do you mean to tell me that those thugs come here and go to work in the mines and then join the Union? Yes, he replied, and when they do, they get in and report the activities of the Union to their chief. I was stunned. This was my first introduction to the agent provocateur. How important a part the agent provocateur was to play in my life never occurred to me at that time but a glance backward causes me to wonder at the gall of these sewer rats with serpentine mentalities. The mine hired Mooney, but he didn't move right away. He went home on Saturday evenings and returned to the mine Sunday afternoons. By now, the bloody Paint Creek and Cabin Creek strike had begun and martial law declared. Mooney would need permission to move, and he was loath to request it. Paint Creek and Cabin Creek will be the subject of the next episode, and I hope you'll join me as I continue discussing the West Virginia Mine Wars. I've relied on many sources for this series, some of which are listed in the show notes at AmericanEpistles.com. 
It'll really help the show if you leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, and check the Pinterest page for images related to the series. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>